Father, we have the privilege of opening up your word, of having you speak to us, although it's not audible, it is eternal. We want you to help us with this message to correctly understand it and to um, apply it in our lives appropriately. We want you to help the audience today, whether they're in this room or online, that they would um, study your word, that they'd be diligent at it, that they rightly divide it, that they develop convictions based on your word that they will live by and seek to please you, regardless of what the preacher says. And so may you be the one who's glorified and lifted up because we're following you. And we thank you for this time that we can share together and encourage each other. And we thank you for all that you do in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in 1 Corinthians 12. We're doing a series on 12, 13, 14. If you read the book of 1 Corinthians as a whole, you'll realize he seems to be answering questions through the book. And so chapter 12, verse 1 says, Now concerning. And he goes into this whole area of spirituals or spiritual gifts as it's often referred to. And he's explaining some things to them. And so we've looked at a couple weeks here trying to understand how the gifts have been distributed by God. They're not something you pray for. They're, in spite of what you're going to see today and next week and on into this, you're not looking for a different gift. You're not asking God to change whatever he did. The Holy Spirit distributes the gifts, 1 to 11. End of story. Got that? Check. Then we looked at 12 to 26, and we realized even though there's individuals that are gifted, it is a united body that gets brought together. We work as a team you may not be the quarterback or the wide receiver. You may be just a kind of a secondary, uh, second place, last string, barely got on the squad, warmed the bench a lot, playing on the line once in a while when the good guy gets hurt. But that's where God puts you. And that is part of the teamwork, and that's what he's expecting you to be good at. You be the best bench warmer you can possibly be. Rejoicing, thanking, trusting and being ready at a moment's notice when the coach says, you're in. You got that picture. So we move to this third section here. In chapter 12, the last few verses, 27 to 31, and he's trying to bring up this interaction of the parts to the whole. How do you keep this whole thing in balance? How does the coach and the team work together? And it gets explained a little bit in here before he gets into the heart of his topic, chapter 13, and the issue of love. So we look at verse 27. Paul, and already, again, I hate jumping into the broader context, but you read all this. I know you did. You're working hard on it this week. I won't look up to see if anybody's smiling or nodding their head or not agreeing with me. But he says in verse 27, now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. He's putting these two pieces together. And he's trying to help you understand the teamwork, the aspect of how all this works. And when he gets here, <clears throat> in the Greek, the word you is emphatic. It's, it puts an emphasis on the whole church. You believers at Corinth are a part of the whole. In spite of your immaturity, in spite of your selfishness, chapter 1, verse 7, you have all the gifts. They're not all listed in 1 Corinthians. That's not necessary. But you have all the gifts they've been given to you. This is a special privilege that you have as a church. And so he's trying to tell them, you as a church of Corinth, you believers are part of the whole. You are important. You need to be functioning. And the idea of R here is a present tense. Each presently has its own place and function in the body. So is that how you feel today? You know where you're plugged in. You know how God wants to use you. 
You understand when he sits you on the bench or whatever he may do with you. But it's Christ's body. He is our head. He's our leader. He's the Lord. He's the one in charge. He's the coach, if we want to put it in that term. Follow him. Joyfully obey. You're in or you're out. You missed two passes in a row. Take a break. But, coach, but, but, I'm not going to miss the next one. It's not your decision. You caught the last three passes. Take a break. But, but, I'm hot. I'm, I'm, they, they're not watching me. I can take it on in. You're not in charge. You're simply a part of the body, and I am too. And so he emphasizes that figuratively, not his body literally, just like when he set up communion with the Lord's Supper in the upper room. He says, this is my body. He's not talking about his literal body. He's talking about a figurative picture of it. If, my, if I held up a picture of my wife and I said, this is my wife, and you'd say to me, she's really thin, small, flat. That's not how you describe it because you know it's just a picture. It's a figurative representation. The same thing he's saying here about the body. But it is a spiritual entity that comes together and works together as a team. This is what he's focusing in on, this part-by-part aspect of what's happening here. And so he zeroes in on that. But the focus is Christ. You might get a lot of credit if you're the quarterback. So some preachers in pulpits get a lot of attention, especially when they draw in tens of thousands of people. But it's, a, it's not about them. It's the coach that's made that all work. It's the coach that decides how the quarterback works and what plays he uses usually, unless they've been in it 20 years and they get to call their own. But it's still in agreement with the coach. But this doesn't work that way. The coach is in charge, and this is what he's zeroing in on. And he says, individually, members of this body. There's where the teamwork comes in. Part by part, we need each other. Each of the members is specific and important. They're a unique part. They're they're a limb in the body, uniquely designed, uniquely appointed to benefit the head. That's what the whole goal of this is. It isn't about making your church well-known and desired by the world. And so everybody online is watching your church because it's so fantastic. That's not what it's about. Online is actually dangerous. I was just listening to a broadcast yesterday, more for the music than for the message, but it was from a church in Georgia. And they said that their attendance by way of online has greatly increased since COVID. So many people are staying home. That might be good because you can't gather, but it's not good in how God has designed the body. Can you imagine the team? Let's this, this make it a football team. They all decide to, to play online. How's that work? Oh, they do have that. What's it called? Fantasy football? How's that work? What's that all about? Bragging rights and money. That's why it's popular. I picked the right guys. I know what I'm doing, and I made a bunch of money off that one because I, I knew what I was doing. That's not what the church is about. I'm all for people watching online when they have to. But if you're using that as a replacement, if you're using that as a replacement, you're violating what the whole body is about. You need to be with each other. You need to be touching and serving and talking to and finding out prayer You need to be interacting as a team does on the football field. They work together. They play off of each other. When, when the play gets broken, you have a broken play, and whatever they called isn't working, then what do the wide receivers do? They just kind of go, oh, well. And they just sit down. I can take a break for a few minutes because this is worthless. Is that what they do? 
they adjust. They scramble. They come up with a new way to get an opening where the, the quarterback can get the ball to him. Because meanwhile, these big, ugly brutes are running after him to hurt him. And he doesn't want to hang on, <coughs> hang on to this thing anymore. So give him an outlet. Doesn't want to throw an interception. And so a lot of times what we have is a lot of Christians that just decide, oh, I'm not, this isn't working or I don't like this. So they just sit down. And where's their Bible go? On the shelf, coffee table. It doesn't get read. Preacher's going to explain it anyway. I'm not as good as a preacher, so I'll let him bring it all out. Is that how it works? Now, and this is why it's important. If you're able to be here in person, then come. Right now, you're helping us because if we had everybody show up, we couldn't fit them in the room. No, that's not an excuse for you to stay home. But we need the body to interact. This is the individual parts have this um, design, this appointment. So what good are the gifts by themselves? Let's say every one of you had the gifts of apostle. Let me pick one that you know is, uh, we'll, we'll explain here, is gone. But let's say you all had the gift of apostle. What good would that be? Where would you guys uh, serve? What's, what's apostle mean? Sent ones. So all of a sudden we gather for church for five minutes, we open a prayer, and you all get up and leave. Because you're going out like Paul did as an apostle and many of the, the apostles of Christ to go establish churches and to check on them and to, to build them to, from scratch and to get them started. So that would be kind of useless. Well, let's go the other way. Let's say all of you had the gift of giving. Now, that'd be great <laughs> for, the, for the church. But what, what, what happened with all the rest of the needs? If you givers are all just cold-hearted, matter of fact, punch some numbers on a card, and drop it in the offering slot, and you're all done. Where, where, where's the um, helps, and where is the um, faith, and where is the, the service that 1 Peter 4, 10, 11? Hospitality is not a gift, but you'd be doing that in a variety of ways. So as you're, as you're looking, sorry, I get in trouble, cards and letters. But as you're looking at this whole um, issue here, you need the uniqueness of each individual part placed there by the coach, by God himself through the Holy Spirit, and you line these up and you work them together. And it explains why when he comes down in here, he's going to lay out what these are. These persons are specifically believers who have been endowed by God with the supernatural ability to instantaneously carry out his, these divine functions. Many are forgetting that today. And many go after whatever's going to be showy. We're going to get into that more in chapter 14. Lord willing, we get there. So there's a lot of confusion. I am finding out as I preach just chapter 12, two messages, how much misunderstanding there still is out there. Folks, tongues are gone. And I'm going to explain that to you in chapter 14. Crystal clear, very simple. It's laid out on the page. They're gone. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 mentions that, hints toward that happening. They're gone. So what's going on in many churches in our country today? What is that? Not the coach's instructions. It's not the Holy Spirit's endowment. It isn't even the gift of language or dialect as Acts 2 talks about. It's an imitation. It's a distraction. It's sidetracking people into something that God never did. And it's the focus of many of those churches. It's what they want to see. I, as a as a, well, I was probably 16, 17, went to a gathering in San Jose 
we, the family, we had a good friend, and he just said, hey, I'm going to take Jack with us. And, and uh, somebody else, had, I think they took maybe one or two others. But I'm sitting there in this room of 3,000 people, and they all started speaking in tongues at the same time. And I stood there for a second, kind of looking around like, what is this? I didn't grow up in that. Didn't go to a church like that. But the man I was with was kind of getting off track. He had had a serious accident. He should have died. My brother was supposed to be in the truck with him when he had that accident. And it, it crushed the side of the truck and the passenger side and left him with a broken neck and months of rehab, all that. And from there on, he changed. Something went wrong in his perception of things. But, but it was after that that I went with him, and I'm sitting there listening. What good is 3,000 people speaking in tongues? It's the same thing like having 3,000 people that are apostles. It's not what it's about. It isn't what it's for. And the Bible clearly tells you it's two or three, not two or 3,000, and each one being interpreted when it was being used in the first century. It had a purpose. It was assigned to unbelieving Jews. If you go to 1 Corinthians 14, 20 to 22. I don't know what the confusion's about. I don't know what the problem is, except people are experiencing something. They think then it must be from God, but they're not going to Scripture to confirm if it's true or not. And it isn't just tongues. There's a variety of things people think they have besides COVID. Just to see if you're listening to me. <laughs> and they don't. The key here, and we're going to get down to it, is love. 1 Corinthians 13 emphasizes that. We'll explain to you that it is the perfect. And when the perfect thing comes, the partial or the individual goes away. You don't need gifts once love is instilled in your church. That's what we're going to get up to. That's what God's goal is. These are crutches put on the church in the very beginning to kind of get it started. There was no Bible there was no leadership. There was a lot of confusion, and yet people were coming to Christ on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 at a time. And then it goes to 5,000 a couple chapters later, and they estimate it may have been as many as 50,000 people in Jerusalem. What do you do with them? How do you lead them? How do you help them? And the spiritual gifts were an answer to that. So you have to keep coming in the coming weeks. Lord willing, I won't miss any for about five or six. And I'll explain to you why the scriptures teach that. And explain to you why what's missing isn't spiritual gifts. That's not the problem. What's missing is love. What is perfect is what's missing. They were to bring us back to a, a wholeness about us as a body of Christ. So that's a, I got off on a little sidetrack there. I can tell you guys are sitting listening to me on pins and needles, waiting for the next air to come out of my mouth. So um, hopefully I won't give you one, but we'll walk through this. Look what he does here. He talks about these individual members, and now he explains them with another different list. Remember the first one he gave, what chapter, or what verses was that in? Chapter 12. Okay, close, 8 to 10. No gift in, in 7, but 8 to 10. He mentions it, but the gifts are listed in 8, 9, and 10, and he gives you a list. Then when he gets over to here to verse 28, gives you a modified list. Leaves a couple out, changes some things. You get over to Romans 12, different list. First Peter 4, different list. Ephesians 4, 11, a, a little different list. And you're kind of going, well, what is this? He told them they had all the gifts in chapter 1, verse 7. Why did he just list them and put them in an order? Because that's not what's important. When you have a football team, I'll go back to that illustration, and the coach decides who's to play where, do you put the 300-pound lineman as wide receiver? Why not? If he runs into anybody, it's like a steamroller. They're done. 
I've seen some big ones. What do we call those? More tight ends or, or more stout and stocky, and they run over guys but, or some of those others. But you don't put them there because they don't function well in that role. But that's what a lot of times we're trying to do in the body. We're trying to force it. So God says, I picked them perfectly, and I endowed them supernaturally. This is what you want to keep remembering. You don't learn how to speak in tongues. There is no process. You don't sit somebody down and work with them. And as I've heard with my own mouth, or my, uh, heard from somebody with their own mouth, speak to me with my own ears, and they tell me, yeah, you just tell them to relax your mouth. Blah, 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 blah. And start working at it. Don't, don't put anything in your mind. Just, just let your mind go. I'm going, don't ever, don't ever do that. That, that. Satan will take advantage of that really quickly. And he does. It's an instantaneous supernatural gift. It's a gift. When you get a Christmas present, does it come partial? Do you get the next half of it the next Christmas? That would be at least a good thing. But what if you only get half of it? You get a bicycle with no wheels. And, and the, the gift giver says, well, figure it out. Is that a good gift? That's what they think the spiritual gifts are. Like God gave you part way, and because of your talents, your natural talents, and your effort, you'll develop it into a really good gift. That isn't what spiritual gifts are. So you want to get the right picture in your mind as you're looking at Scripture so you don't get sidetracked by what people are claiming today. Because there's so much out there that has nothing to do with God. And yet they're professing they know him. And it tells you in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, and that many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't I do what three things? Prophesied, cast out demons, perform miracles in your name. And he says to them, depart from me, two problems. I never knew you, gnosko, experiential relationship. And your problem is you practiced lawlessness. You're not one of mine. Well, then how did they perform miracles? How did they cast out demons? How did they prophesy? And it wasn't even of God. They think it was. They're creating their own identity there. That's pretty stark. So it's not about the gifts. It's about whether or not God is behind what's being done. And he explains that in his words. So he gives you a list here. Look at how, how he describes them. Here's the performance of these supernatural endowments. He says, first off, God has appointed in the church apostles. The word appointed we've talked about already back in verse 18, and it's kind of hinted at in verse 24. Uh, Verse 18 says, but now God has placed, that's the same word, the members, each one of them in the body just as he desired. 24, a similar idea, whereas our seemly members have no need of it, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked. And then he gets down to verse 28 here, and he uses a word from verse 18. He says, God has appointed, God has placed, he has set um, for his own use this, this assignment. It's in the middle of voice, for himself. He's assigned and arranged these gifts for a particular use. He's the coach. He calls the shots. You don't go back to him and say, hey, coach, just because I'm 300 pounds doesn't mean I can't be a great wide receiver. Yeah, you're wide, all right. And you might even be able to receive. But the problem is you're going to be 10 feet down, 10 yards down, and I want the guy 30 yards down at the same time. you got to be able to move. And you got to be able to dive out and have these um, glue-like fingers that just they stick on things. You, ever, you see how often they like to catch it with one hand? I've tried that. I think I need bigger hands. 
or a smaller football. That would work. But he's trying to lay out here, it's God has laid it out. And look what, it, or explain here what God has laid out. And he says, first, it's apostles. First literally means most important. First in importance, in the first place. These are foundational. These are critical. And it's apostles literally are those sent forth on a divine mission. Messengers appointed to establish Christ's church. They're in the very beginning. Who do we know that those, some of those were? Matthew, Thomas, Mark, ultimately Paul. But their, their name, you can see them there. They're listed clearly in Scripture, except for Judas didn't make it. But he was an apostle. And they, because he wasn't there on the day of Pentecost, didn't receive this divine aspect here, supernatural abilities, it, it wasn't given to him. But this is the first primary foundational aspect. One and two are foundational, and they're done. Right? You go to Ephesians 2.20 in the Scriptures. Again, Paul's trying to explain some stuff about the church. 2.20, he talks about God's household in verse 19. He says, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In verse three, or, um, chapter 3, verse 5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, but it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So, the mention right there in 220, they are the foundation. When you set a foundation, then you put another foundation 10 feet up. Now, this is the foundation. When you set up the apostles, they had a job to do. They did their job, and then we moved on. The, the church went on from there to be built. They're foundational. Look at the second one he mentions. It's the idea of prophets. And he gives, secondly, an order as he tries to bring this out. In the second place, or second in importance, he says they are prophets, those who speak forth. Apostles are those sent forth. Prophets are those who speak forth. Apostles with a divine mission, prophets with divine revelation. If you go to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3, he's talking about prophets there a couple chapters ahead. And he says, but one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. Lays them out. So you can go look up those words, figure out what do they mean. This is what a prophet's doing. But a prophet, in the role here, supernaturally gifted, receives revelation from God. Why? Why did God want prophets in the church? What was their job? You guys are afraid to speak up. Make a fool of yourself. Just Spit it out. What are they for? Okay, they, they spoke for him, but I could say that about teachers. How are they different from the third one? They're receiving divine revelation. When's the last, don't answer that question, but when's the last time you received divine revelation? Yesterday after eating too many tacos <laughs> with the fire sauce on them, I got divine revelation from God. What did he say? Don't do it again. That's it. You didn't get any new information from God. Paul or John actually closes that off with the book of Revelation. Don't let anybody add to this book. Probably one of the last ones or the last one written. Don't let anybody take away from this book. Who was John? One of the apostles who also was a prophet. He's receiving divine revelation from God. He even explains being caught up to receive that. Unique role. But as a foundational gift, once the apostles have established the church, 
And the prophets have explained and written down, recorded the revelation from God, they're done. You don't need any more than what you've been given. You have all that you need for life and godliness. I think it's 1 Peter chapter 1. So they're gone. They're foundational. They're one of the bookends. I'm going to deal with the sign gifts as the other bookend. They're gone. And we'll walk through those as we spend more time going through these. But in the middle, you have these service gifts, as they're typically called. Um, now, I just lost the first one. The typical, typical S word they use for that. Well, signs are the last one. Service is the middle one. Whoever those guys are, well, they always want to throw an S in there for the first group. But, but here he only mentions these two, apostles and prophets. They're foundational. It's explained in uh, Ephesians 2. And then you go over to 1 Corinthians 14, 34, or 37. Again, the end of chapter 14, verse 37, he says, If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write, who's that? Paul the apostle. The things that I write to you are the Lord's commandment. You get the impression there that the prophets were subject to the apostles. Paul had a role to play. He, he did both. He's even called a prophet in Acts 13 when he's getting ready to be sent out. So we know there are some that had multiple gifts. We don't know how many had how many gifts because that's not the focus. The focus is Christ. The focus is his body working together as a unit. So these Apostles are sent forth. Prophets speak forth. Apostles are on a divine mission. Prophets are revealing divine revelation. They are speakers appointed to reveal through both forthtelling as they reveal what God once said and foretelling as they actually predict the future, which is rare in the New Testament. People think it was common. People, when you think prophet, that's what you think they were for because of the Old Testament. But when you go to the New, maybe Agabus is telling them what famine is going to come down the road. But you find very little in here written by a prophet that's stated to be a prophet that is telling you about the future. They're mostly just declaring what God once said. They're God's mouthpiece to the early church. Once you have the scriptures completed, they don't, they don't need to be there anymore. They'd be nice. Wouldn't it be really nice to be able to go to somebody and just ask them straight out? Kind of did that in the Old Testament some. But you can get false prophets, right? So you have to have verification. We're going to see in chapter 14 how they checked up on that to make sure that what was being claimed was true. It was a, it was a team effort as you look at that. Now you move into this service area. Three, four, five, six, seven on my outline are more helpfully serving. They're not foundational. They're, they're in the process of staying in there. So you go to teachers, third. In the third place, or third in importance, were teachers, those who instruct from the scriptures. It's pretty straightforward. So you go from divine mission with apostles to divine revelation with prophets to a divine explanation or exposition with teachers. They're not making anything up. They simply take what God has recorded and they clarify it or explain it or put it at an appropriate level for the five-year-old Christian and the 10-year-old Christian and the 15-year-old. As they grow up, they can, you can go deeper and deeper into what's there. They're not making up anything. But they're critical to the church to take on what the prophets have received, this revelation, and to give it out in exposition or explanation. So then fourth, he lists here, but he changes it to then. In the next place, I just call them by number here, 
But then is in the next place, miracles. Those who overrule nature is the simplest way I can put it in there. Supernaturally, instantaneously say, nope, dead man, living. Crippled man, 40 years, healed. Leprosy, gone. Whatever it was that they needed to do. Did you ever see in Scripture where there was a class? How to become a miracle worker? And then you got different grades. I'm only level one, level two, level three. Ooh, you're a level four. We don't have one of those in our church. Come show us what you can do. That's not how it worked. There were no levels. It's instantaneously given by God. They, they go from um, this divine mission with apostles to divine revelation with prophets to divine explanation with the teachers to divine intervention with those doing miracles. They're changing things majorly in their world. Why was that necessary? Serving the body. Remember when they were, I think it was Dorcas, when they said how much she had done and all things she had done, and they, they, they didn't want her to be gone. Some of you have prayed for me. Make his cancer go away. Well, you better add a second thing to that. Make his old age go away. Because both of those kind of creep up on you. But the issue here is this was supernaturally done by God, and it wasn't just flippantly thrown out. You don't have the quarterback calling three plays in the huddle to see which one will work the best. Because when the men get on the line, what do you have? Chaos. Total chaos. That isn't how God works. He isn't saying, well, heal that one, and the other one, um, you know, somebody said, well, that one needs to die, leave him alone. You have the Holy Spirit who is guarding and guiding and working through all of this. He's the one that allows for the intervention. It was not common. I mentioned to you last week, Acts 3, when Peter and James come to the temple, and here's this crippled man, and he's begging for them, and they say, because we've learned it in the song, silver and gold have I none, but of what I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And the guy sat there going, it didn't work. Is that what he said? No. What did he do? He didn't just get up and walk. He was leaping and jumping and praising God. Why didn't Jesus heal him? He probably was at the temple. He'd been there for a long, long time. And I kept trying to tell you, he didn't heal everybody. That's why people today, want to, they think Jesus Christ came and they healed everybody in the land. Anybody who could come in contact with him were healed. Nope. It was a sign. It was to indicate who he was. It was to draw the people's attention to God. And every single person that was healed, Lazarus from the dead, whoever it may have been, they all died again. Or they eventually died. Because that was the curse that comes from sin. But intermediately, he's working with those. So he allowed miracles to overrule nature. Obviously with God's power. All of these things are being done with God's power. It's supernatural. The fifth one, he goes with the word then again. In the next place. And you see how he's putting these in order? What's most important on the team? What's the most important player? Quarterback. Try playing football without a quarterback. The center could hike it to himself and then get mauled. Probably 95, 98% of the time. If he's really fast and the other guys could close in, he might get to step back for a second. But they, they would have no idea what to do with it. They're not trained. And so all these things you think about with a normal team, it doesn't work. You need a quarterback. That was the apostles. The prophets are playing some key roles. And as he works down through here, it's lesser and lesser and lesser. So here he goes, number five, gifts of healings. In the next place, those who cure the sick. This is divine restoration. 
Supernatural abilities to make men whole. Instantaneously. They, they didn't get healed. You know, the lame guy stands up and he's going, well, but my foot doesn't work. You got, all, you got 90, 95% of me, but my foot doesn't work. Is that how it happened? No. When they healed him, they healed him. It was total. What did they know about being a physician or a doctor? Probably nothing if you weren't Luke or one of the doctors running around. It wasn't what it's about. They're simply meeting a need in the body. They're serving the body at a unique time. You see that, and we'll explain more, but you see that fade away. Paul himself prays three times for God to remove what's referred to as a thorn in the flesh. And God says, no, no, no. And you don't hear Paul go, hey, I'm an apostle. And I'm also a prophet. And you owe me. You realize what I've been through for you? And he goes back to God. You don't hear him saying that. Because God's strength was made perfect in weakness. We like weakness, don't we? You know that song we sang, one of them this morning, Great is Thy Faithfulness? What book is that found in? Lamentations. Only how many chapters? How many chapters in the book of Lamentations? Just checking to see if you're reading your Bibles. There's five chapters, kind of like a mountain. And, and Lamentations is in chapter 3. I mean this phrase, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And what, what does lament mean? Why, is, why are they called a book Lamentations? They're having a great day, right? Big party, favorite foods and drinks. Yeah, it's, it's a morning. It's a time of sorrow and sadness. Jerusalem had been destroyed. Why is that, why is that in there? Because God is faithful even in the midst of what we talked about last week, the persecution that's coming to the United States. And you're going to be tempted to doubt him and say, well, he's not watching over me. He's not taking care of me. He's letting bad things happen to me. Instead, you should be saying, great is thy faithfulness. Thy mercies are new every morning. I read out of Psalm 40, I think it was this morning, just in my personal quiet time. And some verses just about jumped off the page at me. Of what God has done in my life in the past. And, and I'm realizing he is faithful. Very faithful. So we get the idea, oh, we've got all the gifts in 1 Corinthians. And, and all it does is make them lazy, immature, selfish babies. Still need to drink milk. If you're frustrated with my Bible studies, you're rightfully frustrated. Lynn and I were just talking Wednesday night. Even the last time I went through Hebrews wasn't as complicated as it is this time. As I learn more, I add more. And so some of you go, oh, I can't even understand that stuff. When are you going to stop drinking milk? What's going to make you be able to understand that stuff? How does a baby get off of his mother? Because she kicks him away? Enough of this. Is that how it works? Or does a child grow enough from all the exercise, all the things they're doing, that they need meat? They need the proteins. They need some other foods that God has designed for them to have. And they don't need mom. And then when they hit about 13, 12, 11, nowadays 10, but somewhere in there, all of a sudden, they don't need their parents anymore. And that's why what we talked about with Mark Twain, he said when, the, when a kid turns 14, you put him in a, in a barrel and put a cap on it and feed him through the knot hole. When they turn 16, you plug up the knot hole. 
That's what he thought of teenagers. That's what a lot of people do. That's what God thinks of immature believers. It's like, what is wrong with you? I've given you everything you've needed. You're lazy, you're selfish, you're a baby, and all you want is milk. Get busy. Get into the Word. Don't tell me you can't memorize Scripture. You can. You may only get one verse down in a month, but you can memorize Scripture. And when you start doing it, you'll realize, oh, I can memorize a verse a week. And if you start sharing it with other people and saying it out loud while you're driving and whatever you may be doing, you'll realize they start sticking. But even better, teach it to somebody. Or say it to a hostile person who doesn't agree with you. Start sharing the Roman road with them. The wages of sin is death. It'll stick. You will not have as much trouble remembering it as you run away from them because they don't want to hear it. We're not exercising, so we're not growing, and we're not moving off the milk. We're staying, and we don't need meat. And I beat on you enough last week. I'm not trying to do that this week. But he's laying these out. God has supernaturally given these endowments to apostles, to prophets, to teachers, to miracles, to gifts of healing, supernaturally curing those who are sick with divine restoration. And then he goes in here, then it's helps. And he just lists them now. He stops being repetitious. The implication is that's what we're doing. We're working our way down. Helps is those who give special assistance. Kind of a hard one to nail down. It's relief. It, It might be people that are supernaturally able. You go, how do you do that? How do you keep doing it over and over? And they call you in the middle of the night. It might be an orphan or a widow. It it may be somebody who's really sick, and you devote your time to them, and you're able just to keep going, keep going, keep going. Well, in the first century, it would have been because God had given them this ability to have divine benevolence is kind of the simplest way I can put it. Divine mission, divine revelation, divine explanation or exposition, divine intervention, divine restoration, divine benevolence. And then he goes down with another one down even further, administrations, only found here in the New Testament. So it's not even in any of the other lists. Then he says those who pilot the church would be a good way to describe this. The root comes from the meaning to steer or to pilot a ship. This was a gift given to the church. This was divine leadership of some sort where they were supernaturally able just to step in and take, make order, order out of chaos and get everybody where they're supposed to be and direct it all. What do we call those people today? Robin? More generally is what I was referring to. but An organizer, a type A, administrator, it's not a manager. It's not a simple thing to pilot a ship, if you've ever never noticed that. We're sitting over at Newport uh, when we got away last week or two, and you're watching out there, and there was one ship stuck out there right in the entryway. And I kept watching it, and I'm seeing things not moving. It must have gone aground. It's not moving. Then a little boat comes out to it and goes back. Forgot our binoculars, so I couldn't watch. It's not moving. Next day, it's parked right next to the, um, the dock of the... Who are the people that guard our oceans? Coast Guard. It was right next to the Coast Guard dock. And I go, ow, it's out there. It must have been intercepting somebody or something. I don't know what it was doing, but it was sitting there making sure whatever was coming in, they were taken care of. It wasn't stuck. It was doing its role. But it was making all the little ships go around it. No big ship was going to come in. Maybe that's what it was there for. Maybe somebody was intending to enter, and they said, nope. And until it went to a different port, 
They stayed there. But they had this thing. But if you try to be a pilot of a ship, try doing it at the mouth of the Columbia River. They have special people to get on board just to bring the ships up the river to get navigate. This is what this person was able to do in the body of Christ. And you look at them and you go, it's supernatural, possibly, if the gift still functions today, which, again, I'm going to have to explain better. But he's trying to bring out the idea that these helpful service gifts, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, stand out. Then he gets into some meaningful signs, and he, he summarizes the two that were earlier in the chapter with the eighth one here, when he says kinds of tongues. And he's trying to bring out those who communicate in an unknown language. This is not what you're hearing a lot of today. It's not gibberish. It's not to be done in the church. It's not to be done in a mass group of 3,000 people. It's worthless. It was assigned to unbelieving Jews, and it was used on the day of Pentecost. It's used in Acts 10. It's used in Acts 19. It has a purpose, and you see it being fulfilled there. But when that purpose was done, when God turned away from Israel, which what you see in the book of Acts is kind of a hinge book between the Gospels with the focus on the Jews and the epistles with the focus on the Gentiles. And you see this hinge in chapter 13. They're told to go to the Gentiles. And Israel is being left in the dust because of her rejection, because of the crucifixion of her Messiah. They wanted nothing to do with God. And because of the persecution, they scattered the church. Some of them were Jews, but they scattered them out from Jerusalem, which God had already told them to go do on their own. When, when, when your dad told you to do something and you didn't do it, and your dad was any kind of leader at all, what was the next step? It was either forced, or it was with a spanking, or if your dad wasn't nice to you all the time, it might have been a kick, or grabbing you by the ear, or the scruff of your neck. I saw my dad work with somebody that wasn't cooperative, and he grabbed him from the upper part of his shirt and from his belt and lifted him off the floor and took him out. I learned from a good man. He was taking somebody that needed to go to the doctor, and they didn't want to go. They were so frail, they couldn't fight my dad. That part was sad. But God does that with us. He gets our attention. He doesn't sit there and go, oh, they're not listening to me. He's not dominating and dictating like Calvinism wants to teach you, but he gets his will done, and it's always in our best interest. He never does anything or tells us to do anything that isn't what's best for us. And so here he lists these gifts, and they're, they're ministering in the church. There are some people there who are communicating in an unknown language, instantaneously, supernatural, and I refer to this as divine communication. Day of Pentecost, you see them, not only in tongues and languages, this isn't gibberish, it's languages, but also in dialects. And I'm not very good at dialects. I could have my son demonstrate other dialects. But you would hear somebody say, even in English, with a southern drawl is what I always refer to because that's the only one I think I can halfway say. But they could be a northerner or they could be from some other part of the world and yet they've learned English. And here they are sharing and you're hearing the dialect. The little nuances of the words that they would use because of where they're from. And I could think of a bunch, but I'm running out of time. These kinds of tongues are families or diversities of languages. It was wide open. God didn't have them sitting there, and there'd be somebody in the crowd on the day of Pentecost, and he goes, oh, God goes, I don't know that language. 
I, I can't help you. We're gonna have to, what other tone? What's the secondary language they have? Because we're going to have to give them that one because I don't know how to speak their language. But you know what people do with this today? They said the whole purpose of tongues was for evangelism. Who are the gifts given to? To the church. Why are they given to the church? To edify believers. Why do you have apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists in Ephesians 4.11 given to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry? Why are evangelists given to equip the saints? Because that's what all the spiritual gifts are for. Tongues were never used for evangelism. God never sent somebody out and gave them the gift of tongues so they could witness in their language. You won't find it in Scripture anywhere. Even on the day of Pentecost, they speak in tongues as a sign, and then Peter gets up and gives a message, and there's no indication what he's doing with the message has anything to do with tongues. And he got really quiet, so that must be touching on something. There's a lot of confusion, and it's out there because of experience. God doesn't need people to speak in tongues to share the gospel. What does he need? Believers who are willing and sacrificial enough to go spend their life someplace where there isn't family, it may not be comfortable, where Korea is still making you wear masks everywhere, and limiting to how many people you can have in a group at any time, and ready to shut down at a moment's notice if something goes wrong. It costs you. That's why we don't witness to our neighbors. They may not like me. Be a pastor. Tell, tell the neighborhood when you move in that you're a pastor, and they'll not like you right up front. It'll just be instantaneous. They won't talk to you. They want nothing to do with you. They don't trust those, those people that steal money and, and um, dominate and tell people lies. I've experienced that a number of times. But you need to recognize that these gifts were needed in the body because they didn't know how to do these things. They didn't know how to go out and start churches like apostles. They did not understand anything about divine revelation. You imagine the mess they would have made out of it if God wasn't supernaturally inspiring and guiding the people that received the revelation to write it down exactly as he wanted, but in their style, how he always blends things. The whole thing about teachers, to teach that truth, to recognize what is in the canon, they call it, what books are accepted. Not the book of Thomas, not the book of Enoch, not the book of whatever's out there today, but to know which one was true, supernaturally gifted. And then they could explain that. To work miracles only God's way. And to leave a man at the temple, as Jesus did, because he has another purpose for him down the road with Peter and James. You ever struggle with that? You ever come up against a situation and you're praying and you're trying to figure out, should I give him money or not? Am I getting in God's way, or am I, am I doing God's will? If we instantaneously give money to anybody that asks, that's very dangerous. Because you may be causing them to not depend on God. So it needs to be a prayerful thing, and you need to sort out. But it's going to be what God ultimately is after. It's all of these, and I could go through them, and I'm really going to run out of time. These were ministering to the body. These were taking care of needs within the body at that given time. And God established the church, established his word, grounded the, the faith to where you have a Bible in your hands that somebody explained to you what that was. And you go, well, it's just a translation. Okay? Then figure out how to interpret it. Figure out how to get back to the original languages. You can get the Dead Sea Scrolls right there. 
There's copies of it, but you need to know how do I discern what, if that's true or not. You need to work at it. If you spent the rest of your life becoming a Bible scholar, what good would that be when you get to be with the Lord? What is the church doing right now? Making herself ready. It's the return of her bride, or her groom, as the bride. Everything you do that has eternal value to it, everything you do that pleases God is beneficial. It's like you're getting ready for your wedding, and too many of us are saying, well, I don't need that. Don't need a dress. Don't need uh, any food. We're, we don't want people hanging around. Don't invite Aunt Mabel. I don't like Aunt Mabel. She'll sit there and tell stories about me that I don't want told. Whatever we come up with, and God has the plan. God is orchestrating the wedding and the, who the groom is and who the bride is going to be. And he's working with all that and bringing it together, and it's going to be beyond anything you could ever imagine when there's a wedding feast. Your favorite foods or new taste buds, one or the other. But he's trying to lay this out because he's trying to help them realize the diversity that's part of this. But I put these as bookends. One and two, foundational. Eight, which will include some other things that could be part of that, um, would be um, also transitional and would be over because they serve their purpose and they're done. I will stand here today and I'll take the flack that to me, anytime you have anybody claiming to speak in tongues today, it is not of God. And to say it even stronger, it is of the devil. Now, you want to go check me out and get into the Word and figure out why I'm saying that. So you've got to come back for a few more messages. You've got to understand it's not a prayer language. The Bible doesn't tell you that anywhere. It doesn't tell you to pray for it. It doesn't tell you to do it. It doesn't tell you to make sure you anything special. It tells you at the bottom of the list. It's the last thing. If you were to make a, a request of God, don't ask for tongues. Nah. And maybe you can't be an apostle and prophet anymore because they've done their job and they're done. But you could look for something else in the middle that has a little more significance to impact more of the body. But if you're able to speak in tongues, it may be convicting to an unbelieving Jew. And that was their problem in 1 Corinthians 14, 20 to 22. They wanted nothing to do with God. But they stood there in Acts 10 and Acts 19 and they're shocked as they watched tongues being used. What is this? Gentiles? Something weird going on here. And you have to go back into that context. So he goes on the bottom here. It's not just a diversity. It also involves a dependence. He's, he's bringing out here that some are qualified to operate with gifts, which others were not. Oh, I like the, I liked your gift. I think I'm going to do that next week. Now, you don't get to do it that way. You either got it or you didn't get it in the first century as he lays these out. There are three groups, the foundational structure, the helpful service, and the meaningful signs. And again, they change. They change every time you see them. I think Paul's doing that on purpose. I, don't, I think he's trying, to, he's trying to make a point that I'm not giving you an exhaustive list, and you are never going to understand them because it has nothing to do with you. When the coach picks the team, he looks at him and he says, I'm going to give that one the gift of apostleship. And it's like a bunch of little kids out on the playground. We're going to make a team. Pick me, pick me. You ever seen that? Even then, I know that God was working on me and that I was a believer because I always picked the ones who weren't pickable. I picked the ones that nobody wanted because I didn't want them to be last. 
And God blessed me, even back then as a kid, sixth grade especially, um, little kid, I, I, I won't get, well, his first name was Charlie, I don't remember his last name, but we called him Toad, and I picked him, well, I don't know, sixth graders do that kind of thing. I picked him for the football team, and I thought, Charlie's just going to stand there. Charlie was the 300-pound blocker. Charlie mowed over people. You didn't know Charlie could do anything until somebody said, hey, you play here and you do this. Charlie goes, okay. Boom, boom, boom. Okay, Char Charlie, don't hurt people. <laughs> this is how God works. What you want to see is God working behind the scenes, not our abilities, not our talents. I keep finding that word in a bunch of commentaries I went through trying to see what I could help straighten me out on some of this. And, and they kept using the word talents. And I go, they're not talents from the human perspective. And so endowments was the best I could do because it's supernaturally put on you, boom, 100%. It's what you do. But then God, as the coach, still, God the Holy Spirit, still decides when you play and what position you play and what play he calls to decide if you're involved or not. We don't like that too often. Anyway, I'm going too far. But he's trying to bring out here this goal of perfection, the last verse, verse 31. He says here, and I'm going to try to explain this in a way that may, hopefully will make sense. But in verse 31, and so I kind of skipped over 29, 30, but he's just saying, they're not all, the, you're, you're all distinct, all right? Um, and, and so I kind of left that. But verse 31, but desire earnestly the greater gifts, and I show you a still more excellent way. Well, we've got a problem in the, in the grammar. Desire or earnestly desire, as the New American puts it here, is in its exact same form as a command, imperative, as an indicament, I mean indicative, statement of fact, and as a subjunctive. And it's like, great, you're not helping me at all. Because I have to figure out which one you're dealing with here. Well, a bunch of them today want you to take it, kind of like New American Standard kind of took a lighter way, but they still pushed it, that desire the greater gifts. That's Go for the gifts. You're kind of like the cheerleaders on the side here. Gifts, 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 gifts. Get your gift. Go, go, go. Make your gift work for the show. <laughs> Whatever they may say. Oh, thank you. I might, I might have a new gift that I didn't know. But it's, it's what they're trying to do here. It, and when you put in the imperative, it comes. he's not encouraging them. He's not commanding them. He just rebuked them. Well, I put, I put the word correct that I whited out the rebuke. Not quite that strong. But he just corrected them. You guys are out of whack here. You're thinking you can do whatever you want. You put tongues on top, you'll see that in chapter 14. You're elevating it, and it's not working. It's not serving the body in the way it was supposed to serve the body. If I ever had to come up with another ditty like that, I, it would never happen. <laughs> so I think this is an indicative. Here's how I would translate it, unless they cut me off and I run out of time. He says, now you are coveting. It's a present tense. Now you are coveting or striving for the impressive gifts, but I am showing you yet a still superior way. That's how the two lines come out. He's, he put in it more, I think it's two present indicatives with these two, but it's not so much a command to earnestly desire, but, but to be striving, um, and i got to read it how I wrote it. Now you are coveting the impressive gifts. These ones that are more important, magnificent, distinguished, eminent. That's the idea behind the word greater. That's what you're coveting. That's what you guys are going after. That's why you've elevated tongues so high, as you see in chapter 14. But he says, but I am showing you yet 
or moreover, or he could say there in addition, he's not throwing the gifts out, but he says in addition, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. Using the word that we get, we use the word in English, hyperbole. That's the Greek word. What does hyperbole mean? Exaggeration. And so he's saying, I'll show you an exaggerated way, an extravagant exaggeration, one that's extraordinary, one that's far better. It's beyond all comparison. It is surpassing. It is excelling anything that you could do with the gifts. And what's he going to move into? What's the perfection? It's love. See, if you're loving one another the way God intends us to love, and he told them that all the way back. Remember Jesus, before the disciples even received the Holy Spirit, before the church ever began. He told them to love their enemies. He told them to love God and to love their neighbors themselves. Love was not a foreign idea. It was part of what was supposed to be there. Now he's coming back to us and says, I'm going to help this fledgling body of believers to get established. But what I'm really after isn't that you have a crutch of a spiritual gift, as good of a crutch as it is. When you need crutches, use them. I remember one time I was on crutches for 30 days. Never played basketball again. Destroyed my ankle. It's still there, but doesn't feel like it. And so as, as he's walking through here, he's trying to tell them, this is what I'm really after. This is the extravagant, surpassing way. This um, description, to put it there, find my word. Um, a, approach, as I translate the word hadas. It's the word for, a word for way. It's, this is a... Excellent way, an excellent course of action, an excellent direction, an excellent method of doing things. If you're loving one another, you don't need the gifts. Do you recognize that? The foundational ones are done. You don't need to tell me or you don't need the Holy Spirit to come upon you and give you supernatural ability to have faith if you are a mature believer. If you have love, then all the rest of these things are going to fall in, just like the fruit of the Spirit. It's the first one mentioned because it overrides. We're going to look at it in three messages, what love exactly is. It's not this cuddly, easygoing, give a handout to anybody that asks kind of thing. That's not love. If that's true, and I just heard somebody this week saying, God, the God of love would never send people to hell. Well, the God of love is sending people to hell, which the problem we have here isn't that God isn't loving, it's that you don't know what love is. People call up here regularly. They think the church is a charity. I let Brian answer most of those now. <laughs> That's what we're here for. And I had a lady almost rebuke me one day when she asked for, she said, I need help with my house payment. And I said something to her. I said, well, that, we're not a charity, but that's not why we exist. Now, and I try, to, I try to get into the gospel. I try to get what's really meaningful. But she said, well, that's what I thought churches help people. And she went on and on. And as I started to share the gospel, click. She didn't want what was really necessary in her life. She didn't want what was really going to benefit her. She didn't want me controlling her anyway. She just wanted a handout. And it's sad. So here's Paul as he wraps this up. He's seeking perfection. And as I put it there, now you are striving for or coveting the impressive, magnificent, distinguished, eminent gifts. But I am showing you, I am pointing out to you, I'm exhibiting a whole new 
extraordinary approach or method to go about doing this. And he, he moves them toward love. If you go back to the scriptures, and I have a handout, I have a handout on almost everything these days because I'm old enough to have had time for that, but I'll give you a handout that explains why the spiritual gifts are probably gone. And from the very beginning, what God was after was to not focus on the gifts, it was to focus on maturity. To present every man complete in Christ, mature, teleos. That's what Paul was after. He wasn't worried about what gift you had. Those are just tools to use at the moment as directed by God. But the real goal was to have a genuine love, a sacrificial devotion to one another. It supersedes faith. It supersedes giving. Why do you need a special gift to give if you genuinely love somebody with your whole heart? You don't. You will sacrificially devote everything, even your own life, for them. And you can go down each one of the gifts and realize they were needed in the beginning with a bunch of baby Christians. But that's not how. He, he wanted to take the training wheels off and for them to learn how to ride the bike as a big kid. Are you moving there? Would you say that you are maturing in Christ? That's what God's after. It's not for me to measure that in you, but it's for me to come alongside and figure out how I can move you in that direction. Maybe you think you're a Christian and you're not. You made some decision. You prayed a prayer. You gave lots of money and God owes you. Whatever. You could claim a lot of things, but if you don't recognize that the Sermon on the Mount, and I will close off with this, starts off with the first characteristic. Blessed are the Not peacemakers. Make? Oh, meek, not meek. You, this open book exam, I tell you all the time. You can go to Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why does he start with that? Because what he's telling them in the Sermon on the Mount is blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. You finally have come to the point where we often saw at the rescue mission in San Jose when the guys hit the bottom. There was no place else to go. So when you finally acknowledge your need, poor in spirit, now you can start working up the ladder. And people come up with all kinds of ideas of what the Sermon on the Mount, I haven't preached that for a long time. It's probably on, well, maybe it isn't online or on our website. But when you walk through it, you realize what he's moving them toward is salvation to maturity. That's what his whole goal was with all of that. And he's talking to Israel. Have you acknowledged your spiritual bankruptcy? Or do you try to meet God kind of halfway? I got some good stuff to offer. And when those people come into the church, they get really frustrated when God doesn't take them up on it. I've had people mad at me for not going along with whatever it was that they thought would be a great ministry for the church. And I try to explain to them from Scripture, that's not what God tells me to do. You go do that. You're motivated to do that? Go for it. But I need the 501c3 deduction, tax deduction. I need the church to oversee it because I'm getting older and I may not be able to keep up. And so who's going to do it? You know who that means? Me. Don't put your baby on my doorstep. If God is motivating you to get into a ministry, then you go for it. Just don't violate what he's commanded you to do. I'll pray but this will continue next week. <laughs> Father, we are grateful to you for the truth 
It's so simply laid out in your word. We've been taught by too many people who either don't know what they're talking about or they aren't following your way. Help us to get back to the scriptures and let them speak and to ask questions, even if just what does it mean to be poor? We can look that up. We can discern what, what it's about. And we can check and see if, that's, if we've done that. And then the second one, to mourn. Because once we realize who we are before you, it brings great mourning. And then to realize no matter how many abilities and talents we have, that we are to be meek. We are to have our power under control. We're to submit to you and let you do with us as you do with Paul on the road to Damascus. When one of the greatest Pharisees of the day was humbled and blinded and made to be led around by Christians. Father, may each one in this room know you because they started at the bottom and they received your free, perfect, supernatural gift of the death and resurrection of your son. Use us for your glory. Help us to be who you want us to be so that we can make a difference in our world and lead others to you as well. And I thank you for the privilege in Jesus' name. Amen.